Um, and let me, uh, let, me, let me get us ready for the series that we're going to. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to open up to Philippians 1. Uh, we're walking through four weeks of Philippians, basically just chapter 1, verse by verse, um, in a series called Joy Thieves. All right, so I'm going to give you a second to get there. Because one of the themes that uh, Paul has in this letter, primary theme, really is joy. And for us, uh, that's a difficult concept. We, we struggle to find joy when we have a good house, uh, a good car, uh, maybe a, a closet full of clothes, cabinets full of food. We struggle to find joy. Uh, we lose our joy uh, when our body aches, uh, when a car breaks down, when we don't have AC, or when DirecTV decides to swipe ABC out from our package, right? Uh, we struggle to find joy, and it's clearly knocked out. But, but we have to look at Paul here, who's writing this theme of joy in the letter of Philippians. Uh, this guy, he doesn't live the posh life. He is in jail writing this letter. He has no freedom. He has no wife he has, no, uh, he has no Netflix. He has no iPhone. Um, he has no food. He's eating jail food. Like he can't call Uber Eats to feed his belly. He, he doesn't have uh, the posh things in life that we are, all these comforts. He is deprived of all things, but he's a completely sane person. And yet, he is the most joyful person on the planet when he's writing this. The lesson Paul is teaching us out of the gate, really did this last week, is that joy is not found in a trouble-free life. It is not found in what we have or what we do, that joy is only found in Jesus. And I've got a working definition that I, I came up with this week. If you're a note taker, follow me on this. Uh, this might help identify some things. Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul Produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. So, so despite circumstances, despite what you have, what you don't have, all those circumstantial joys, despite of all those things, joy is then that moment where in the midst of all of that, you stop and you are amazed by the beauty of Christ his salvation on the cross, what he's doing in your life. You see the good and what he's doing and then what he will do and promises do to the very, very end. But here's the issue. We are uh, living in a flawed world, a fallen world, and we're flawed people. So we have these joy thieves that come into our life that make us forget those things or take those things away. Joy thieves. Last week we started talking about some of those things. And really, joy thieves, let's call it what it is. It's called sin. It's not just things that take our joy. These are sinful things. We talked about the joy thief of insecurity, the joy thief of misplaced identity, uh, the joy thief, uh, the sin of lack of submission to Jesus as our master. Those are the things that we talked about last week. They steal your joy. Today, we're going to talk about the joy thief called isolation. Uh, we'll use the word isolation and loneliness um, synonymously uh, today. Um, Jeremy Linneman, he wrote an article in the Gospel uh, Coalition uh, pointing out some recent headlines about this epidemic of isolation. And he writes this. This is a, some stats from even Surgeon General. 
Surgeon General's got three or four here, so I'm going to read those first. The Surgeon General has declared that there is a loneliness epidemic in America. He goes on to say that social isolation leads to more death than obesity. The Surgeon General has also declared that loneliness has the same effect on mortality as smoking 15 cigarettes a day for the next generation vaping and juuling. The biggest threat facing middle-aged men isn't smoking and obesity. It's loneliness, according to the Boston Globe. Now, no surprise, despite the rise in digital connectivity in our world, technology has not conquered uh, the disease of isolationism. Despite the fact that we have way more many followers than we ever had before in the past, despite the fact that we might have more friends on social media, despite the fact that I actually can figure out maybe what you ate for dinner last night on your grill, despite all that useless information that I think that I'm connected to you, we still don't know each other. There's this phenomenon called being alone together. This is the world that we live in. And despite all those advances of technology, once again, we still see that isolation is rampant in our country today. Uh, Let's talk church. Let's talk church for just a moment. Uh, Some of you walk in here on Sundays and listen, there's a whole bunch of people in here right now, probably 200-something people. In the course of three services on Sunday morning, there are over 550 people that will probably walk through this church Um, And yet, present in a crowd of all those people, yet there are still people today that would say things like, I don't feel connected. I feel lonely here. I'm kind of a shy person. I'm a little quiet, kind of an introvert. And yet, you say those things. And I want to tell you that isolation is devastating to your soul. This is not how we were wired to function. It's not good. This is not just uh, you. Uh, this is something that pastors struggle with as well. A little secret here. Pastors can, can be, if not careful, some of the loneliest people um, in the church. Why is that? I think the reason that is, uh, I'll describe it like this. Me and Callie have hundreds of acquaintances, I mean, we know a lot of people, uh, and, and there's people that uh, I know a lot about, but I don't really know them really deep. Now, I've got some friends in my, in my life that will, at the call of a phone, and they're on their way. They will get there with me in the trenches. They'll be there. I've got those kind of friends. But um, if not careful, um, there can be this lack of intimacy between me, my wife, and the congregation. And here's why. Here's, here's this awkward dance that we kind of play with one another. Uh, many people don't get close to the pastor and his wife uh, because there's a fear of being known by us. Meaning like, if, you get, if we get too close to you, then we're going to see all your junk, right? Uh, we'll see your stuff and you're like, oh, I don't want them to get too close to me. This is a little uncomfortable. So many times we don't get the invite to the parties, if you know what I mean. Uh, so here's the other side of that. The other side of that is that me and her uh, can put up a wall that says, we don't want you to come and see our dirt either uh, because you might see our imperfections and then you might question my leadership. 
Uh, there might be a fear of, of getting too close to you out of being hurt because that's happened before in the past. Uh, there might be a fear uh, of, of getting engaged with you at a deep level because what I just can see there easily is more burdens than blessings, if you know what I mean. So we have to fight that because it's not good for us to remain in isolation. This is contrary uh, to how we were created. This is not good for any of us. Um, and we see that modeled in how uh, we are wired by our God, our creator. Now, here's, here's three different kind of people that I see that, that this might be you here today. Three different kind of people that struggle with isolationism. Okay? The first person is the sensationalist. Uh, see if these, these are you, if these fit into your camp. The sensationalist doesn't engage in deep relationships in the Christian community in the church because it lacks wow and excitement. It's not sensational. It's, it's boring. Hanging around a bunch of Christians. So what they do is they disengage from these deep relationships and they go find the relationships outside the church. So they're more scintillating, being honest. Here's the second one. Uh, the second group of people are the idealist. The idealist are the people that have this wish dream of what the church should be, what the people in the church should be like, but find them greatly lacking, greatly hypocritical, so then that what they do is they just refuse to engage in it. Oh, a bunch of hypocrites. It's so messy. They're not like what it should be in the church that I see in the scripture. So then they just disengage from deep relationships here. The third group is the individualist. The individualist is the one who lives their life in a perpetual state of quiet times. They, they live a privatized faith. It's a me and Jesus and not a we and Jesus kind of mentality. And it is devastating to your soul. My point is, is we're all flawed. We live in a fallen world. We all have the tendency uh, to be antisocial people, all right? We're all on the hook here, but praise be to God, he has a cure for these things. He doesn't want to leave us in that position because it's not good for us. It's not good for us because we know that God himself is a communal God. We have a, a God, one God, three persons who lives in the Trinity, the Trinitarian God, one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's in perfect community with himself. Deep concept of the Trinity. We don't have time to unpack it. But God is a communal God. And what does he do? He creates us in his image. Image bears to be like him, to be communal. We know in Genesis 1.27, God created the earth and it was good. But there was one thing that was not good and that man was alone. He was privatized. He was antisocial. He didn't engage in community. And he did something about that, right? Gives the community to the believer. We know that we're created in the likeness of Jesus Christ, who Jesus comes on the scene, God in the flesh, and models the importance of being in community. And he's around people all the time, right? He, he pulls 12 in, we know specifically, to deep relationships, and then he pulled three in to deeper relationships. If Jesus Christ, God in the flesh himself, needed to be around community, to be known and to know other people, how much more do we need to be in community? So Paul has the, the cure for us today, all right? Uh, I think that uh, in this text here that we're going to read 3 through 11, 
um, Paul is communicating this, that the, the cure to isolation and loneliness is not found in us having more friends and followers. Um, it's found in gospel partnerships. Gospel partnerships. I think you're going to see that theme, but let's read this together, 3 through 11. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you are all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Let me pray for us. Father, I think that... um, God, there might be two distinct, different kind of people, um, Father, here today. I think there's the lonely. They're the ones that don't feel connected, that may be isolated because of either guilt, shame, personality type. Uh, God, would you just put a spirit of, of encouragement and also conviction upon them that they would engage today and fight against the joy thief of isolation. And you would lead them into deep gospel partnerships at our church today in a tangible way that changes their life. Uh, God, I think there's another camp of people, and you know their hearts, that are just in rebellion, don't want people in their life. They want to live privatized, quiet times, me and Jesus mentality. God, would you show them to the preaching of your word through the scriptures that it is not good for them to do that it might be messy it might be difficult but their joy will be full when they engage and cultivate gospel partnerships move your people give us ears to hear and eyes to see in jesus name amen all right so i think what we're seeing here as i said to you i think paul's going beyond Friends and followers. When I read this text, there's a deeper level affection language that he is using uh, that is way deeper than just friends and followers. It is gospel partnerships. This is where our joy will be found in gospel partnerships. This is where isolation loses its sting, and this is where our joy would be full. So the first thing I want you to see Uh, There's our first bullet, is the joy of partnership. Where do we see that at? We see that in verse 5. He calls them gospel partnerships. We see this in verse 7 where he says that they are uh, partakers in the same grace. Here's what Paul's saying. That this is the the commonality that, that weaves all the people in the church in Philippi together. The primary commonality is that they partner with the gospel and they're all partakers in grace. A partnership um, in the Greek is the same word that we've used for fellowship. It's called koinonia. Partnership. 
partnership in the gospel, as I said, is the commonality. And that's the place where these deep relationships happen. I think that one of the reasons that a lot of our relationships fail in our life, or, or they're not long-lasting, and they're definitely not joy-filling, and joy-feeling, joy is this. is because we base a lot of our relationships and friendships upon commonalities that change. Think about the circles of life that you do and the people you surround yourself with. And uh, now, now, granted, some of you, you're united in the gospel and you lean into these relationships. But for many of us, we have friends outside the church and it's based upon commonalities that are not the gospel. And they just don't simply work. They change with things like seasons of life, uh, hobbies, uh, other affinities. Those are things that, that are not going to last. And I'll use this example uh, for you. Uh, there was a time in my life when I was a younger man when I wore medium shirts. Uh, and some of my friends are like, hey, bro, you still wear mediums. I don't. Uh, but I used to play basketball. I used to play basketball a lot. And I played basketball at every opportunity that I wanted to. I played pickup basketball, played in leagues, um, played in the morning. Uh, I mean, I played basketball a lot. But here's what began to happen. I, I developed a lot of relationships and friendships with those guys because uh, that's what I did. Our commonality was basketball. Well, life has a way of taking your body uh, away from you when you get to a certain age. You're right. Amen to that. You feel what I'm saying? So here's what happens. As that changes and my body begins to return to dust, uh, I start to get injured over doing nothing. I can pull my back out in the sleep. Like I can get injured sleeping. Uh, I can get in the shower and tear an ACL while washing my leg. Th this is what happens when, we, when our commonalities change. Well, what happens is I don't, start, I don't play basketball anymore with those guys. Our commonalities change. It was based upon something else so then they just fade. It wasn't anything wrong. It just, we just don't do the same things anymore. Think about other commonalities in your life that often change. Think about uh, some of you are parents of kids who play sports, right? Well, you develop relationships and friendships around that. You're like feeling really cool. This is my, this is my family. This is my peeps. Well, what happens next year when you jump teams to the next one? Gone. You ain't friends with them no more. Your commonalities changed. Think about your job. You have this neat affinity. They say that you're like family at your job. Well, as soon as you quit your job or you change or you get fired, boom, there goes the relationships as well. Why? Because they're not based, they're all based upon superficial connectivity and not the root deep thing that Paul is making a case here for. This is not just in your life. This is also in the church. Many people in the church unite and gather around commonalities that often change. Hey, I'm only going to get in a single mom's group over here. I'm only going to get in the women's ministry. I'm a senior. I'm not really in with the young people. I'm going to get over here and just do my senior ministry, men's ministry, right? I'm going to be, uh, we even have a ministry called Special Needs Connection Crew Ministry. All of these affinities, they're okay. They're all right to have commonalities. But if you only have connectivity here based upon those things, here's what will happen to you. You will build up walls around you. You'll make it difficult for people to enter into those things. And your joy will lack because you're not experiencing the fullness of the beauty of Christ and all of these people that you have in common with. See, there's no, in the scriptures, there's not such thing as a student ministry. I don't know if you knew that. It's not a men's ministry. 
There's not a, a Spanish-speaking ministry. There, those are, there's nothing wrong with those things. But my point is this. We have the gospel in common with one another, and it unites all people together. And this is where your joy will be found, not in all of those shallow, superficial commonalities. So what's the basis of our relationship comes down to this. You and I have this in common, that we're not good. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned against the Almighty God, and we find our righteousness lacking. There's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor today, to have life today, and to have life with him in abundance later in eternity. We can't do that. None of us can. So it doesn't matter if you grew up in church or you grew up in, uh, man, just the rural areas of what you never even stepped foot in church or today is your first day in church. It doesn't matter if you've never said a cuss word outside of the one you slipped up and made up one day outside when you hit your finger or something, or you cuss like a sailor. It doesn't matter if you were poor, rich, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, young, old, senior, student. It does not matter. All of us have the commonality that we are sinners who are desperate in need of a Savior in Jesus Christ. That is where the deep things begin to happen. This is the gospel partnership that Paul is talking about. And when we can unite together on those things, that's actually where our joy will be found. It's true in marriage, isn't it? That's why the scriptures talk about not uh, marrying someone who's not a believer in Jesus. Warns against being unequally yoked. Why? How can you partner with someone in marriage if they're not partnering the gospel? You can't. And that's not a permission to go get divorced if you're married to an unbeliever. But it does mean this. God has wired it in such a way that we would be gospel partners with our spouses. Why? What happens when you're not? Well, when strife comes and pain comes and fighting comes, one gospel partner says grace, forgiveness, while the other says vengeance and justice. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. Divided because there's not a gospel partnership. Single people in the room do not settle for someone who is not a gospel partner for a spouse. You'll be lonely forever if you do. And that's way worse than you being lonely together today in Jesus Christ. Don't succumb to that. Think about the church. As I said, how the gospel unites different people of just, I mean, just all kind of craziness. Like, I look around the room, and I know professions, and like, we shouldn't be together, y'all. I mean it. There's some crazy differences in a lot of people in here, uh, and we should not be together. But we have the gospel in common, don't we? I got a friend, Daryl. Y'all might know Daryl Wardlaw. Um, Daryl, me and him, nothing alike. <laughs> Daryl is like Daryl the Baptist. All right, often like John the Baptist, I, he is a beekeeper. He loves honey. He probably eats locust. Uh, he's a hunter. He's a gatherer, a snake handler, uh, not in a weird assembly of God kind of way, but in a, like a I'll go grab a snake off the road kind of way. He'll pick it up. I won't do any of those things. 
I see a snake, I'm killing it. He's picking it up, coddling it. My, my point is, outside of the gospel, we have no commonality. It's the reality, he'll tell you that. But here's what we do have in common. We have in common the gospel. He loves Jesus, I love Jesus, and I love him, and he loves me. This is a picture of what it means to love the gospel and have a gospel partnership. I like to think that Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. Remember, he's writing it 10 years after he planted it. Um, and he ch- planted that church, remember, through Lydia, a slave girl, and uh, the Roman jailer. And think about them in general, how, how they had nothing in common, right? We had Asian, wealthy, Lydia, educated. You have move on to the slave girl and a demon-possessed. There she's poor, impoverished. And then you go on to the blue-collar Roman jailer. I'd like to think all of them, completely different kind of people with no other commonalities but the gospel, are present in this church. And you know what they didn't have? They didn't have a wealthy Asian ministry. They didn't have a recovery group for demon-possessed girls. They didn't have a blue-collar men's thing for the Roman jailer. They had enough in common of the gospel, and it was a beautiful picture of the church. So I say that. Listen, I don't, I don't mind you having and us having some commonalities that help us to connect here. But gosh, please don't limit it to that. Please open yourself up to all of the people in God here who love Jesus Christ. You will benefit greatly and your joy will be full. I promise you. Let's fight isolation in that. So let's go on because there's a commonality. That, that's the foundation for our relationships. All right, No other. Now he goes on to show us how those function and what they should look like. The second thing is this. There is the joy of affection. If you look at Paul's language here, in verse really 3, 6, 7, 8, 9, he's using words like affection. This word affection um, in the Greek literally means, as he says, he yearns with affection. It's a, it's a feeling in his gut. It's angst, angst in his bones and his being. He's yearning for these people with affection. He uses other words like thanksgiving, love, holding them in his heart. This shows us that Paul was not just this impersonal saint, this uh, cold theological giant. Paul had a heart, an affection, a love for his church and his people. And he's modeling us and our relationships how they should look. You know, Paul thanked uh, many God for many things, but he thanked God for people more than anything else. I think we can learn here, um, we need to, I guess the, the picture that we see of the Christian here, according to Paul, is biblically informed and deeply affectionate. I think that's what he's wanting us to see, that we have, we have informed minds study theology. We read our Bibles. We know the God of the Bible. We, we, we study the deep things, but then it overflows into a deep affection for one another. We see that out of the gate when Paul begins to pray for his church. It says he thanks God for all of them, right? They're all believers. That's who he's talking to in the church. He thanks God for all of them, even the ones, even the EGR ones, right? Extra grace required. He, he's, he's thanking them, He's praying for them as well. Think about prayer. 
And we know also, too, in, in chapter 4, some of these people, uh, they needed a pastoral kind of a review, so to speak. I'm going to say rebuke, but they needed a little bit of a counsel. There were some other issues going on. But Paul here doesn't focus on criticizing them. He's still praying to them. He's thankful for them. And I think the, one of the lessons he's sitting here showing here is that we should be thankful for all the people in the church who are believers in Jesus. Think about if you, um, it's kind of hard to be bitter towards someone if you're praying for them. It's hard to criticize somebody if you're in the midst of praying for them. It's hard to walk away from them if you are praying for them. Criticism, you and I being hypercritical of people in the church will steal your joy. And listen, we have to be very careful here. We can leave this place and be so critical of everyone, the congregation, the staff, the pastors. And I think what Paul's teaching here is this. How often do we pray for those people? You see, he was thankful for all of them. That moves me and that convicts me. It's like, okay, i got to be thankful for all of them. All the partakers in grace, the gospel partners... I have to be moved towards thankfulness with all. And when I don't have it, I'm in sin. So this is the love, the affection we see out of Paul. Man, when's the last time that you maybe told somebody how thankful you were of them and their gospel partnership? I think we can correct our minds in that, encouraging people as Paul's doing here. Now, I want to stop here because I think what Paul does... In verse 6, is he gives this church the best form of encouragement uh, and affection and love. He gives them the best form of that in verse 6 when he says this. Let's look at it. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul had a confidence in God. Paul had great theology, and the theology that he had wasn't just to inflate his head, it was to inflate his joy. He had a confidence in God. What was his confidence in God? What was he boldly stating that he would do? That God would secure their salvation. You see, I think Paul knew that lack of assurance of salvation is a joy thief. I think he knew that there'd be people sitting in a church in 2019 in this church today who might have been exposed to different uh, denominational teachings, uh, to other religious forms of uh, the faith, maybe uh, the Catholicism in there, maybe some teachings that you heard growing up where you were taught or heard that you could lose your salvation. Fear of maybe something you did. You were condemned for a decision that you made. You've done too much. God would never have you back. For you today, if you lack the assurance of your salvation, I want to read this passage to you one more time. This is a warm blanket to your soul. And I'm sure of this. He 
who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Listen, that's a life verse. It's a life verse. See, if you don't know theology, you don't know how salvation works, you're often left to your emotions and your feelings about your salvation. It's not what you feel about your salvation. It's what you know. It's what God has said about it. And here's what he just said. He began the good work in you. If you are in Christ, he began the work in you. Not you. Can't be both. He began the work in you. The day that you stood up, the raised your hand, the, the profession of your faith, he began that work in you. You responded. And when he starts something, he finishes it. We know that the gospel of John, he tells us and echoes this theology of the security of your salvation. It says that no one snatches any of them out of the Father's hands. You can't even squirm loose from the hands of Jesus. He's got you. He's clinging to you. And your salvation is not secure because you cling tightly to Jesus. It's because he clings tightly to you. And he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That should bring you great joy. What's the proper response to that? That's where we got to go. Paul knew that people would say, hey, man, you preach that stuff. They're just going to float on into abusing, getting drunk on grace, antinomianism. They're just going to keep sinning all because they can't lose their salvation. What did Paul say? By no means. How who we who died to sin continue to walk in it, live in it. That doctrine, the assurance of salvation, is supposed to lead to happy people, Humble people who are fighting and pursuing holiness with every fiber in your bones. Not to presume on the grace of God, not to fall into laziness, but aggressive sanctification. The permanency of your salvation is a gift from God. Now that should give you great joy. Now we know that here... Let me, let me read a quote to you from John Piper here. He says this, When God wrote our names in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, he didn't do it with a pencil and eraser handy. He writes it for eternity with permanent blood. You know how um, you might be thinking this right now. Man, I know some people who they were in the church. They made a profession of faith and they left the church. They're gone. They left the faith. They're nowhere to be found now. One of two things are going to happen. Either they were never a part of the faith. They made a profession of faith, but they did not have a possession of faith. Either that's the case, or they might be drifting, wandering in sin. But he who began a good work in them will bring it to completion. God's going to chase them down. He's going to bring them back. He'll finish what he started. This is the joy of the assurance of salvation. Let me lead into this last one here because as a foundation of gospel commonality, we have uh, joy and affection. Now it leads to the joy of mission. All right, the joy of mission. Um, we see that 
Paul uses language uh, like defense of the gospel, confirmation of the gospel. These people in the church in Philippi are, uh, they're evangelizing right alongside of Paul. There wasn't a division of, of Paul and church. They all were gospeling people all over Philippi. Um, and I think what he's doing, a good, a good illustration here is this. If you've ever worked at a job, let's use a restaurant for example, um, and you develop this camaraderie, uh, this commonality towards the mission at your work, and you have different functions. You have a host, you have the chef, the bartender, the, the waitress, and there's just all this teamwork, but you're all kind of going the same direction. There's a commonality of mission that's kind of there. Well, if you're in a restaurant and you're an employee, your relationship with your coworkers is different than with the customers, right? You don't have that commonality there. They're on the other side, and you, but you have your co-workers here. Here's what I think Paul is communicating here to the church. They're not uh, customers in the church. They are co-workers with him in the gospel. And this is a great lesson to us because if we're not careful, uh, the church can turn into an arena culture um, and can really fabricate this idea that you're a customer, a consumer, uh, who's being served by me, Right? And that's not the picture we see here in Philippians. You all with me are gospeling people. You are uh, co-partners with me in the gospel. We're all together gospel partners. Commonality. Same vision, same mission, same Savior, and same promise of a future heaven in glory. And I think the the point here is this, that when you engage um, in evangelizing and sharing the gospel with people in your life, you watch and see how your joy will be increased in incredible, incredible ways. You know this if you've ever played a part. God's used you in such a way where you shared the gospel with someone. Life transformation. You've seen it happen and God used you. Man, I'm telling you what, joy overflows your heart. So I'm going to encourage you, if you're not engaging in the mission with your other gospel partners Man, get off the sidelines and engage with us. All right? Uh, let, me, let me land this because all of the things that I've said to you um, here today, if they don't change and move your life in such a way that's visible and tangible, and all we do is meditate on everything that I say today in the Word of God and we don't take action, uh, it's a failure. All right? Here's where I want to drive you to. How do you engage? How do you cultivate And how do you develop these gospel partnerships in the church? Clean and easy right here. This is a piece that we laid out to you last week. If you didn't get it, um, we have them at Discover Life Point on the way out, but it's also on our app. This is the way that you engage, cultivate, develop gospel partnerships at our church. And I'm just going to say this Uh, to you, if you end up leaving our church and the reason that you leave the church is because you say, I don't feel connected, the problem is not the church. The problem is you. If you fail to step into these things, it's on you. And I'm not telling you to do these things because it's obedient, and it is to do these things. I'm telling you that you doing these things is where your joy is found. 
So I'm for you. I'm not trying to mandate some rules here. I want, you to, I want you to feel what it means to have gospel partners here. I want you to engage in maybe it's church membership here. Maybe you've come for a while and there's a, a loose connectivity. You're trying to figure out who we are. There's a, a dating kind of process happening. It's all right. We can do that. But at some point, you marry, you marry into a family. That's what church membership is. And some of you need to do that. Apart from that, there are so many opportunities on this card. There are on-campus life groups for couples, singles, all kind of different ones of those. Starting on September the 8th, on-campus Sunday morning. Today, when you leave, Russell and Paula Region are going to be standing at the little table outside by the window. Go talk to them. That's what they're there for. There's going to be on-campus classes on Sunday morning, women's Bible studies. There's going to be uh, a gospel class taught by Brian Dembozik. Uh, there's going to be uh, other theology classes on how to understand the deep things of God, how to read your Bible. Uh, there's going to be Monday night women's Bible studies. There's going to be Monday night men's Bible studies. We have laid out a host and a menu of things for you to step into. And it is with great encouragement and hope that you would take advantage of these things so that your joy would be full and the thief of isolation would not steal from you. Let me pray. Lord, you are always for our good and every single command that you give us in the scriptures, the command today specifically to engage in community here at this church, it's meant to secure our greatest good. God, would you help people to see that? Would you fight through the the lonely, isolationist, the antisocial. Would you welcome them into this community? And God, for the hard-hearted that refuses, doesn't want to be in uh, relationships because they're muddy and they're difficult, God, would you show them with your grace and with your compassion that this is actually where their joy will be found? Thank you for the gospel that unites all of us. Thank you for eternal commonality in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.